Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. Hello and welcome to the Athletic Soccer Show. My name is Mike Zimmerman and I am joined today by Sebastian Salazar of ESPN, ESPN FC and Football Americas. Seb, how are you doing today? Great, great. Day 30-something here in Qatar, uh, one week to go and uh, things are still popping off both in the tournament and with the uh, men's national team. Yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll talk about all the on and off the field stuff. Um, but as we know, the USMNT crashed out of the World Cup losing 3-1 to one to the Netherlands in the round of 16. I kind of want to start with the group stage matches because that's where we kind of saw the most encouraging signs from this team. What were your overall impressions uh, from the games against Wales, England, and Iran? Iran? Yeah, I mean, I think if you look at the group phase as a whole, and we break it down into kind of six halves of play, you can make the argument that five of the six halves went the U.S. way. I think there's two stretches where you think the U.S. was kind of clearly up against it. Second half against Wales and the last 20 minutes against Iran. The last 20 minutes against Iran doesn't bother me as much as it bothers some people. I think a lot of folks thought that Greg Berhalter was far too negative in the second half there with his substitutions. I think the reality is Iran was desperate and they were always going to be pinning the United States back for those last 20 minutes, no, no matter really what the U.S. did. Um, and I think the Wales second half is probably something that we look at as a learning experience, not just for Berhalter, but the team itself, because the tactical change that Rob Page makes wasn't like, or shouldn't have been that complex, that hard to figure out, right? He threw on a big body and took a speed guy off and, and Wales kind of changed what they were doing. Um, and it really seemed like the U.S. just couldn't figure it out, like right, couldn't stop the bleeding uh, until the penalty finally gets called and, and you get the equalizer. But I think outside of kind of those two stretches, you have to say the U.S. looked pretty good. Were they clinical? No. And clinical is a big part of success in tournament football. And it's a big kind of sign of your quality, right? There's a lot of teams that can play well for stretches, but can't finish other teams off or can't take advantage of that advantage that they might have in terms of the flow of the game. So I think there's something to be said about that. It was an incomplete group phase if, if you want to look at it that way. There wasn't that final product maybe that we would have hoped with so many talented attacking players. But when you talk about going toe-to-toe with the likes of England, who we just saw outplayed France, I don't think that's much of a question, outplayed France um, in the quarterfinal, even though they lost, you get a sense that this American team's ceiling, its high end, is pretty impressive. Like, it's pretty good. They're just There needs to be a number nine there, I think, to finish a lot of those moves off. And that's something we could talk about you know, down the road looking to 2026. It clearly wasn't on this roster. And maybe some of the decisions before the tournament kind of led to that. But I think if we look at the group phase, you really have to say, one, that they played well, right? They didn't just get good results. They performed well, which is important. And two, I think 
it was the best we've seen of the team in the most important moment. Like if you go back through qualifying, they were never really convincing. Not to say they were overwhelmingly convincing in the group phase, but if we acknowledge that the level is taken up a notch, then I think you have to say, wow, this team looked better than they had in qualifying. Why was that? And beyond that, and I'll give Greg Berhalter some credit here, they finally looked like a Greg Berhalter team. Like for me, one of the things that when this, when the Federation hired Berhalter that was clear is, all right, they picked a guy whose team has an identity. Columbus Crew during his time, you MLS used to be, and it's different now, literally every team looked the same. If you swapped the jerseys, the way they played, like you wouldn't really know. Columbus was one of the few teams you would know. One is because they gave Berhalter continuity, let him stay there a while. And you could always tell he had his outside backs bombing forward. They were a huge part of the attack. We never really saw that in qualifying. And then we saw it in the World Cup. Like finally, when it mattered most against, in theory, the best competition, we finally saw an identity to the team. So I think when you look at the group phase, you have to really uh, acknowledge that it was the best we've seen the team look in a long time against the best competition, while also stating, hey, at the end of the day, you have to score goals to win games. And I don't think there was enough of that in the group phase to really kind of stand up and applaud this team. Um, but there was a lot of positives, as you say. Well, the lack of goals, does that come down to the just the struggle to develop an out-and-out striker? Or is there a deeper issue in the way that Burhalter set his team up during this tournament? It's an interesting question. I, I think... I think a number nine solves a lot of those problems, right? Like I always go back to the the comp. There's only so many good quarterbacks in the NFL, right? And if you have one, like you never let them go or you try to never let them go. They don't grow on trees. And a lot of franchises just kind of struggle until they find that guy. Elite nines are really hard to come by in world soccer. And then I think you can, when you're talking about the American pool, be honest and be like, even our best nine is, was not even close to that. Even if you want to throw in a PFOC, a Pepe, the guys that didn't come, like they're not anywhere near that level. I think that solves a lot of problems. Um, the other thing is like a lot of these players that you're counting on for goals don't really have a track record of scoring. Like Christian Pulisic had a great, you know, goal return in his first season with Chelsea. If you look back at minutes played since then, Maybe not so much. He scored some big goals in big games for sure, but not consistent. Is Tim Weah like a, a volume goal scorer? No. Is Gio Reyna, you know, had we seen more of him? I know we'll talk about his situation. Is he a volume goal scorer? No. These guys are all kind of connective assist guys. And so I think instead of pointing at the coach and saying, well, the setup didn't really lead to goals, I think you have to kind of look at the pool and say, where, where did you expect the goals to come from? If there's one area that I would say was disappointing for me, and some of this comes down to, again, the players and their execution, but also coaching, because we know the U.S. went out and hired a set-piece coach. Set-pieces used to be such an advantage for this U.S. team. And in tournament football, tournament soccer, um, you can make a living on set-pieces. You really can. And I think from the service down to, like, you know, I expect a guy, I expected Weston McKinney to get a goal in this tournament off a set-piece, you know, just based on his history. Uh, both with the national team and with Juventus. It didn't happen. The service wasn't there. When Christian Pulisic was standing over the ball, after the first game, you were kind of like, instead of being like, is this going to be dangerous? You were wondering, is he going to get it over the first man? And so I think in those, in those moments where you need to be clinical, 
it's not just the finisher, right? It's the player delivering the final ball. How many times did guys get into good positions and the final pass just missed or the run was just off? And that's the difference. Like, that's the difference. I know, you know, kind of focus group phase. But as you get deeper and deeper in this tournament and you go up against better and better competition, I just go back to the game against Netherlands. Every single pass into the box, whether it was finished or not, could have ended in an own goal. It was just incredibly dangerous. And we didn't see that from the U.S. either in the first game against Wales, where, again, we go back to that first half, they had a ton of the ball, or the game against Iran, where, again, in the first half and early second, they could have had a, a second goal and really finished that game off. And even if you want to go to the game against Netherlands, and I think some of this might have been Christian Pulisic's fitness, feeling, health, and that coming off the pelvic contusion, he had chances, not just the chance to score. He got into good spots where Christian Pulisic usually picks a guy out in the box, or you expect a player of Pulisic's level to do that, and he missed. There was three-on-twos where he missed, the, he missed the guy and missed him badly. And so I think in those moments, um, we talk about clinical, you think of it as the nine putting the ball in the back of the net, but it's everybody when they get into the final third, and that was missing. And I think that's, if we're being honest, just a reflection of, A, the quality of the player pool relative to the teams you're playing against, and then development. A lot of these guys are young. It was their first World Cup. All the key players, this was their first experience. And maybe not having had that experience in this stage led to some nervous moments in the most critical moments, which is when you're in the final third in the attack. Well, we've seen the playing style of this team evolve over Greg Berhalter's tenure. But the results and the outcomes are kind of the same from every other previous men's national team World Cup campaign. Is it just down to the fact that this is such a young team and they had to do it had to be a big overhaul after failing to qualify for the 2018 World Cup? So there's lack of experience. There's a lot of youth. It does it come down to that, or or, or is there something else that that we're just not seeing from the men's national team? Because the results and the outcomes are the same but the playing style is evolved. Is it just something that will come, come in time? Well, I'll disagree a little bit, like, because I know we can go back to 2014 and 2010, but those are lifetimes ago. The reality of this group and this coach and this federation and this program is they're coming off a disastrous 2018. So we, I don't think it's fair to just say, well, it's the same that they've done over the last few years. No, the, the last World Cup, they didn't qualify. They were fifth in CONCACAF. Like, that's bad. That's really, really bad. Um, the other point that I think is, is important is, as a result of that, you have to kind of take all of your old guys out, right? So you lose that institutional intelligence. That was a decision that Greg Berhalter took that eventually affords him the opportunity to blood the young guys in CONCACAF, in qualifying, which is a risk, right? It could have gone very bad. And there were moments where we were like, go back to that first window. Against Honduras in that third game of that first window, like at halftime, you go on Twitter and people are like, Berhalter out, like it, it, he's not going to last. He's not going to last till the second window. Um, then then there's, you know, the peppy comeback, everything happens. And, and you know, I think the narrative kind of changed from there. I think generally when we talk about, because, you know, you said men's national team. So what I see with this American team and international football, and Herc always says this on our show, Hercules Gomez, Football Americas, um, it's a young man's game. And I think what he means there is it's an athletic game, 
right? It's a game for the athlete. And we have great athletes in this country, no doubt about that. We have great athletes on our team. Look at the numbers that Tyler Adams put up running wise. You have to be a great athlete to run eight miles in a game twice in nine days and still look fresh. Like that, that's not a small feat. I think we have to be honest about the technical level of the American player. Um, I even go back to before the World Cup, if you remember the friendly against Japan. Now, Japan proved in this tournament that they are incredibly gifted technically and that they can do some other things as well. It's not, right? They're not just good on the ball. But when you go up against high quality opposition in a pressure setting, you have to be able to keep the ball yourself as an individual or keep the ball as a team by connecting passes. And we saw that from Netherlands in their counterattack after nine minutes of U.S. domination, of U.S. chances. They got one counter and they pinged it around the U.S. like varsity against JV, right? They used that athleticism against the U.S. And so I always go back to like, where does that come from? Why is that that way? I don't think even the best kids in this country, right, when they train for soccer, the way that they train is they, they drive an hour to a practice. They go to a practice for two hours with 20 other kids and get a few touches on the ball under expensive and in theory, high quality supervision. They get in a car and they drive back. And in every other country, kids walk out their front door and they play for four hours and they walk back in their door and that's it. So the touch deficit that even our best players are at um, is significant. And when you get up against high quality opposition that can truly feel comfortable on the ball, your lack of comfort is exposed. And I think Eunice Musa, great player, right? Weston McKinney, great player. And Musa's kind of an outlier because he wasn't necessarily developed in the American sister, system. Tyler Adams, great player. But technically, are those guys elite? I don't know. I, I don't think so. I don't think when you compare them to midfielders from around the world, you can really say that they're, they're technically on that level. And I think that's where the U.S. were exposed. And that, that goes through the entirety of the roster. So I think just a lot of it is kind of how we develop players, what we prioritize, prioritize in, our, in our youth landscape. And, and I think, and I'll make another point here about why I think that kind of that is the way it is. Youth soccer in every other part of the world is based on developing players, right? That's the ultimate goal. So you work on technique one, and you pick players with technique too. Soccer in this country, especially at the youth level, and I know this because I, I work in it, I coach in it, aside from what I do at ESPN, is based as it's a profit business. And the way that you market yourself in a profit business is by your results, your winning. So at the youth level, even at the youngest levels, like U9, U10, you pick not the technical kids, you pick the big, fast, strong kids so that you win those tournaments so you can market yourself, your team, your club. And everywhere else in the world, it's free, right? The clubs are incentivized to create players. That's what they work on. So you pull kids from everywhere and you work on their technique instead of just pulling rich kids from the middle class, which we only do in the United States effectively, unless they're really exceptional outliers from the working class. And so I think you combine all those factors and you produce a player who is less technically gifted than the players elsewhere in the world. And that reflects itself, of course, when your cream of the crop gets to face everybody else's cream of the crop in the World Cup. Well, why is that, though? Is that, is that the, the Federation's choice to, to not make it free, to make it 
harder for maybe the middle to lower class kids to be able to play and then develop them? Is that a federation choice? Is that just part of American culture? What, you know, where does that stem from? And I guess, how do we kind of shift and, and, and try and adapt to kind of more the, the world's view on developing kids? I mean, if we want to be blunt, soccer here has always been a business. Like Major League Soccer is a business. It's a business first, and I think a soccer league second. Like that, that's that's for me, as I've looked at that league and its growth, I've always sensed that, right? Um, and I understand that because the people who are investing in it are, are businessmen and a few businesswomen now, uh, but mostly businessmen, and that's going to be their priority. To lay the blame strictly at the Federation's door is, I think, easy somewhat correct, but a little bit lazy, right? I think if you go back to the 80s and 90s, when people really started to realize that youth soccer could be monetized, those folks that were coaching chose where to set up their clubs. So I grew up in the suburbs of Maryland, where my parents live now, still in the suburbs of Maryland. There's a youth soccer club every 10 feet. Potomac Youth Soccer, Bethesda Youth Soccer, McLean Youth Soccer, all these clubs, right? Now I live in D.C. in the city. There's no clubs. There's no youth clubs. There's like one youth club in all of D.C. There's more kids, right? There's, there's much more density of population. Why, why aren't the good coaches there? There's fields. There's talent. Why isn't it there? Because there's not money, right? That's what it is. So I can blame the Federation, but I really have to blame the people who early on saw youth soccer as a business and maybe they were business people too, right? And so, and that's where the club started. Now, has the Federation been direct enough in tearing that system down and challenging it? No, I don't think they have. I think they could do better. I think they're trying to do better. But I think overall, the, where I see the kind of the, the missing piece, the missing link is at the Federation level, you can give all the scholarships that you want. But really what you're doing is you're counting for the 12-year-old miracle who comes from a working class family who's good enough at 12 or 13 for a club to say, we want this kid on our team because, again, he helps us win and market ourselves, right? What needs to happen is, I'll give you an example. The club that I grew up at, I won't name them. I've, I've named them before. It won't be hard for people to figure out. Has like five or six teams for boys and girls at the U8, U9 division. What are you doing with five or six teams? That fifth or sixth team, what level of coaching, what level of training are they getting, right? Those eight and nine-year-old kids that train there at that club are getting access to something, whereas the eight or nine-year-old kid that hasn't popped off yet in the inner city, but might come to be something, will never be that. They'll never be given that opportunity. And I think that's where the loss is. The loss is not... Of course, there are examples of, of kids from underserved communities and underserved uh, homes and working class homes that have made it. But those are the exception. And the bulk of kids from those neighborhoods and those homes and those school districts don't get the chance to get good training at eight, nine, 10 that the kids in the suburbs get. And people always talk about like, oh, well, you know, there's 300 million people in this country and X amount of registered players. And how come Croatia with 3.9 million or Uruguay with 3.4 million can outperform us? Because they're all of their kids play. Their underserved communities are served. Those kids are served not at 12 or 13 if they're good, at eight or nine if they're terrible, right? If they just love the game, they're going to get a place to play, 
good coaching. It's going to be free. And they're going to be given an opportunity to develop into something at 12 or 13. If you're waiting for the kids at 12 or 13 to start deciding who might be pro, at that point, you've missed. You've missed just a huge window, both in terms of actual bodies, but also development. Like at 12 or 13, if you're picking the best kids out of a system that only trains two, three times a week, those kids are at a infinite touch deficit to the kid in Netherlands, to the kid in Brazil, to the kid in other parts of the world. And I think like we have some very, very good players in the United States, elite players. I don't know that we have that yet. It, it, well, I mean, and to be honest, I don't know if we'll ever know that if, if we keep closing it off from other, you know, from certain backgrounds and, and monetary levels. I, I think that we're kind of just, we're closing it off from our potential. And I think that that's a huge gap to overcome. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com courtside to learn more. This episode is supported by Season 3 of FX's Welcome to Wrexham. Celebrity owners Rob McElhenney and Ryan Reynolds' small-town Welsh football club has finally been promoted into League 2 after 15 seasons in the National League. Dedicated staff and supporters celebrate the city's return to glory while bracing for the newfound challenges that come with being in a higher division. Will Wrexham AFC stand up to the challenges and rise again into League 1? FX is welcome to Wrexham. Catch all new episodes Thursdays on FX. Stream on Hulu. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10. Place your first bet on any game and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. But I kind of want to stick to a hot topic right now, and that's mm-hmm. Giorena. Um Very hot. I, I, I <laughs> think that a lot of us, be, before the, these off-the-field reports came out, a lot of us were questioning, 
why hasn't he played? Uh, you know, is, is it fitness? Um, you know, is it something else? Is it just Burhalter doesn't rate him? It, it now seems that Gio Reyna wasn't trying in training and he had a terrible attitude. I get first on the pitch. What's the best way to get the most out of Gio Reyna? It, you know, is it on the wing? Is it in the midfield? I guess because it, it's not having arguably your most talented player in the squad being being a non-factor. It seems like a big issue. Yeah, so let's look at the 11 as it was set up because I think the big criticism of Burhalter was coming in that he could like never pick the right 11 and he was decent in second half adjustments and then the opposite kind of happens in this tournament, right? He nails the 11 steamingly, you know, probably doesn't rotate it as much as he'd like had he had a deeper pool, had he had more guys available uh, and then struggles with the in-game adjustments. But who are you taking out for Gio Reyna? Because you're not taking Pulisic out. You're not taking Tim Weah out after that first game, right? The, the, the kind of discussion was Weah, Aronson, or Reyna. I mean, if I'm going off current form of those three players coming into the World Cup, I'm putting Aronson in the starting lineup, actually. And then I'm between Weah and Reyna. And the logic with Weo was he gives you something different than Reyna, right? He's he's much more vertical. And I think he proved not just with his verticality, but with his play generally, that that was the right choice. I don't think it would have been smart to have taken Weah out. So at that point, Reyna's a bench player, whether his attitude is good or attitude is bad. I don't think that playing him for 45 minutes as a, as a nine through the middle is the best way to give him a chance to succeed. I think that that was that's putting a player in a spot where you're basically just like, hey, we're desperate. I'm throwing you on here after not really having used you um, in a position that that you don't really play and is not built for you, right? Match up against Virgil Van Dyke. Enjoy that. Like, not it's not going to work out. Yeah. And he he looked like a player that to me was out of rhythm for having not play and and out of position. I think his best spot is probably maybe right wing or dropping him into the midfield uh, if you need a more creative player. I think there's a, there's a case to be made there that at some point you might have rotated him into midfield because what did Berhalter tell us before the tournament? He was really guarded. He didn't say much. The one area he let on was that he would use his subs, right? And it turns out he basically stuck with the same lineup outside of tinkering the nine and the center back once throughout the group phase. And when you got to the game against Netherlands, it was clear the way this U.S. team played, the way the coach asked them to play, they were gassed, right? Especially that midfield. Could you have given Weston a little bit more of a break and brought Gio in for Weston in one game or for a whole half? Uh, and maybe Weston would have been fresher or maybe done the same with Yunus Musa because I think maybe that's, that's more the comp there um, in terms of connective players. You, you take a Moose out and, and you bring Reina in. I think that's probably um, where I would have liked to see him. I really like Reyna as a 10. The problem is this team doesn't play with a 10. So, and you're not going to change your lineup, right, or your formation. If the U.S. played in a 4-2-3-1, then Reyna underneath that striker, yeah, I think, I think that could be some magic there. If he's playing well, behaving well, all the, all the things that, you know, I, I think we kind of took for granted and now maybe we're questioning. But – I think if you look at how the team performed, especially in the positions where he played, I don't know that there was like an obvious fit for him 
in this tournament in the starting lineup. Not to say he shouldn't have had more minutes and maybe as a rotation he gets a start. But I think, what did we talk about all tournament? The midfield. We talked about Tim Weah as like a star and the midfield three, the MMA midfield. And so you're not moving one of those guys and you're not moving way up. And that's the bottom line for Gio. And probably that was a big factor in the decision ahead of the Wales game that seemingly upset him. Um, you know, but I, I think we see now how it worked out. It seems like the correct decision from the coaching staff. So you, you do think that this poor attitude, again, reportedly mm-hmm. of Gio Reyna comes from Berhalter's decision to not start him. Do you think it kind of stems from that or, or has this been maybe something that that's been growing for a while? And this kind of just was the cherry on the top that set everything off. So a lot of people have kind of spoken out of turn here and, and said things that, you know, they're not really explaining what they mean. I've heard from a lot of people, um, some who have trained with Gio in a professional setting that he's tough. Like he's a tough kid with a chip on his shoulder. And there are many, many, many times when that chip on your shoulder is a good thing to have. It's a great thing. But sometimes it can work against you and it can especially work against you when you're 19, 20 years old and you don't ex- quite know how to control it. Then let's put into context what Gio's last year has been frustration after frustration after frustration with his own body, right? And probably with a medical staff at Dortmund, because if we look at what happened at Dortmund, eventually they fired their effectively, you know, got rid of their medical staff, not just because of Reina's injuries and re-injuries, but because there was like a ton of hamstring injuries and muscular injuries at Dortmund. Marco Royce can't stay healthy. So he's frustrated as most of us do when we're younger and we're frustrated, we're looking at other people. We're not always kind of looking at ourselves. I, I've been guilty of that. Then he comes into the national team where, and he comes in, let's not forget, off of a stretch of health at Dortmund and, and, a, and a stretch where Dortmund, his employer, the people who actually should view him less as a person and more as an asset, right? Decided he was healthy enough, not just to play, but to start games in the Bundesliga. So in his mind, he's fit. Now he gets to the national team and the manager says, here's the level of work that I need from everybody pre-tournament. And Gio doesn't meet that. And he might think he's fit, but the manager ultimately has to decide, along with the medical staff, if the player's fitness level is enough for the job at hand. And whether that was Gio wasn't ready enough or other guys were in better physical shape for the job at hand, that's the decision that Burhalter took. Now, how you react to that bottom line is on you. And I would expect most 19, 20-year-olds to be pissed about it and probably to sulk a little bit. I would expect Gio Reyna, you know, with the bloodlines he comes from and having somebody in his corner like his father to be a little bit more prepared than most 19 or 20-year-olds, frankly, right? Um, he still, he... he according to the reports, acted out. And then I think it's up to what seems to have happened, which is the manager and the team to figure out how to deal with it. Now, they didn't figure out a way to keep Gio Reyna engaged and then become an important factor. He wasn't that. We have to acknowledge that, right? Is that to say that they lost Gio? No, sending him home would have been losing Gio. They kept him in the group. 
He had a small role in the game against England. He had a, a more significant role, perhaps not the one he wanted, perhaps not the one that was ideal for him uh, in the game against Netherlands. But for a player to behave that way, for the team to react, reportedly, for the team to react as they did, for the manager to react as he did, and then for him to still have a role, I mean, that's you, you're being pretty forgiving there, I think. Like, there's a lot of teams, a lot of situations where that player quietly gets buried on the bench, even if he's a big name, you know, you figure it out after the tournament, the stories will come out as they have and surely as they will continue to come out. But I think it's not a surprise that a 19, 20-year-old acted out that way. And it's not a surprise that the rest of his teammates seemingly held him to account and that the coaching staff took that into account when they made their playing time decisions. And I think that's totally fair on all sides. And Gio will have to not just learn from this, but live with it as well. Because, you know, World Cups, they're not every year. They're, they're once every four years, in this case, three and a half years. And hopefully this will be a learning lesson for a, a young player with a chip on his shoulder. And maybe that chip will lead to a great 2026 World Cup or a great second half of the season at Dortmund, because there is a good side to that chip. But in this case, the chip on his shoulder seemingly worked against him. Well, I'm sure this won't be the last that, that we hear from this topic because it, every day it seems like we get more and more information, see how it unfolds. Um, so we will see. Uh, the big question that remains, and I'll kind of split this into, into two separate ones, is will Greg Berhalter return? And is he the right coach for the U.S. men's national team to get to that next level past the round of 16? Whether he returns or not, I think is totally down to circumstance. And that circumstance is what options he has. From everything that we're hearing, we had Casey Keller on our show, who's a longtime friend of Greg Berhalter's. And he told us, you know, this is not what Greg has told me. Like in the last couple of weeks, this is what I sense from knowing Greg. And he knows him really well. Berhalter seemingly wants to get back to the club world. He wants to work with guys every day. We know he's an ambitious coach, not just because he took this job, but because his first job was in Sweden, even though it didn't go well. He said, I want to go to Europe and try to prove myself over there. I can't imagine that he doesn't want a second crack at a club coaching job in the European theater. And should that job, that opportunity arise in the coming days, weeks, months, I would be shocked if he didn't take it. Because I don't know from Burhalter's perspective if he thinks there's much more he can do with this national team. Maybe there is, um, but he's also in his own mind probably thinking, hey, I, I accomplished everything that everybody set out for me to do. I brought in a new generation. I qualified us pretty easily. Like they'd have to lost six nothing to Costa Rica to, to not go in automatically. I got us out of the group phase playing decently, right? Like not Poland, not South Korea, got us out of the group phase playing decently and got us to the round of 16 where we lost to a better team. This is going to happen nine out of 10 times for teams from CONCACAF from this part of the world. That's just the reality. And still with a chance down two to one as well. Totally. And then from the Federation standpoint, I think there's also some circumstance. How attractive is this job now? World Cup coming up in the United States, young talent. Are you ambitious enough? Are you looking at other options? Do you have the money to spend? Are you trying to recruit somebody else? And if you've been doing the work over the last year with the thinking the possibility is Greg might leave at the end of his contract, which is up at the end of the year. Um, then you should have some candidates, maybe not waiting in the wings, but ready for you. 
that's all circumstantial, like how that plays out, we won't know. And it's, and a lot of that comes down to timing, right? Like it may be a marriage of convenience where Greg doesn't have anything great lined up, neither does US soccer. So they kind of have to stay together for now. If you ask me if, if Greg Berhalter is the right guy to take this team to the next level in 2026, from what I've seen of his in-game management, I'm just focused on that. I don't think so. I think when you get to, because the next level is a knockout round win at the World Cup, which for teams from CONCACAF are super rare. It does like never, ever happen almost, right? Unless they're playing each other, like USA and Mexico in 2002. One of them has to win. Yeah. Costa Rica. Let's give Costa Rica some love in, in, uh, in their run in 2010. 14? Yeah. 14. Um, but outside of that, CONCACAF teams don't win. So you're going to be going up against a team with better players and probably very good coaching in those round of 16 games. You need somebody who is a tactical master, which means they're going to nail the starting lineup. And in game, they're going to be able to make immediate adjustments quickly. And I think we saw against Netherlands that as the game after Netherlands scores the first goal, the game continues to drift out of control for the United States. There was not a reaction from the sideline. In fact, if there was any reaction, it seemed to be keep doing the thing that you're doing, which in, for me invited the second goal. Like it felt like the second goal was coming in the 30th minute, it happened in the 44th and, and that's where it falls. And then I think we can look at the second half against Wales is another prime example as well. The US lost control of that game early in the second half and never regained it. And that's in the second half when you have all your subs at your, at your disposal and you should be able to, to counter, again, what was a clever move from Rob Page, but not like a, an overwhelming tactical shift. And I think those are the, the small margins that you need from a coach to win a knockout round game in a World Cup. And right now, Greg Berhalter, I don't think is that guy. If he goes to Europe, learns more, he may come back as that guy. If he sticks around for another four years, he may grow into that guy. Right now, is he that guy who in, in 20 seconds or in five minutes can make a quick decision that's going to turn the tide of a game? I don't know that I've really seen it. I saw it a little bit in CONCACAF qualifying, right? At that level, at the World Cup level, I don't know that I saw it. And I think that's that's where the U.S. can improve leaps and bounds by 26. Your player pool is going to get better by 2026. All these guys are going to grow into their prime. But you can you can immediately go out if you're US soccer and if you're ambitious and if you're willing to spend and recruit and you can get a great coach. I think this is a very attractive job. You can get a great tactician. And if you do that, then whatever your player pool is, you elevate their ceiling. Just look at a Morocco, right? I think that's a perfect example. Better player pool, you might say, than the United States, but a coach that clearly understands how to set his team up to win and to advance, and then in-game is capable of making adjustments, and that's how they're in the semifinal. They're not just in the semifinal because they have great players. They're in the semifinal because they've got a coach who's managed the tournament very well, and I think the U.S. can find a guy who can do that better than Burhalter. I mean, I, I think I think it's the easy narrative, but it's it's relatively true is that Berhalter was the right guy for this moment after not qualifying, mm -hmm. re, you know, uh, rehaul. 
But now moving forward, he may not be that guy. Not saying he's a bad coach. He was the right coach for this time. But now to take that next level, there are certainly questions. Um, yeah, and let's let's also acknowledge. I think like what's happened in in the aftermath of this of Geo, kind of you know the the sloppy way in which this story is being shared. Um, we've heard reports that like he's having difficulty. There's difficulty and challenges with him connecting with European players. Like it may just be that this relationship between him and this group of players has has wore itself out, and that's okay. Like that's not a reflection of Greg Berhalter as a bad coach or this player pool is entitled brats. It's just the reality, and I think it may be best for both. It's not just for U.S. soccer. I think also for Greg Berhalter to move on. Well. As we mourn the loss of our colleague and friend, Grant Wall, I kind of wanted to end this episode with a chance to to reflect on how Grant impacted your life. I know you had um, some very nice words on Football Americas. Um, I kind of wanted to give you an opportunity to, to, to share how Grant impacted your life. Um, so I think by now everybody has seen like not not one story, not a dozen stories, but literally hundreds of stories of people in soccer journalism who have a tale of Grant either vouching for them, like straight up helping them get work, or in a private moment, validating them. And in each of those moments, Grant was had the upper hand, so to say. Grant was the king of the hill at the top of the mountain. And looking down the proverbial like stepladder of success was validating others beneath him. And I will admit here, that's something I struggle with. Like I struggle to compliment competitors publicly. It's probably born out of like insecurity or um, just out of competitive drive. Um, and he did it knowing full well that we were all coming for his space, right? For not for his job, um, but for his space. And I think what I've realized just in thinking about Grant a lot in the last 48 hours is that he was not guarding his space as so many in this industry do. He was trying to create more of it so that all of us could come play in the sandbox. He had a sandbox pretty much all to himself. And instead of spending his time at the edge of it, keeping others out, he went to work building a bigger sandbox so that we could all come in, play, maybe do things that he disagreed with. And I'll, I'll admit that like he checked me at times. He checked our show at times privately. I don't know if he ever did it publicly. Um, and I didn't always agree with the way that he was checking us. Um, but there was a value to that. And it was earned, like his right to say, hey, like when you guys say something like this, um, here's what it implies. And I, I don't know that that's like correct. And there was a value to his role there in the American soccer, like journalist community. But I think for me, the, like the biggest win the biggest significance of Grant Wall's career is that not only did he go about promoting others, but he very specifically proved to a major outlet that soccer was a beat. Everybody has now in the last few days seen the cover 
story that he wrote on LeBron. And that's like a, I said it on the show the other night, a dude that writes that story can then go like, look at Brian Windhorst. He's made a career off of like covering LeBron when he was young. Like Grant could have been Adam Schefter or Windhorst or whoever, Woj. He could have been that, um, but he chose soccer. And then he validated soccer to Sports Illustrated. And once that happens, then Sporting News has to hire a full-time soccer guy. Then ESPN has to think about having a full-time soccer guy. Then Fox. And so that ripple effect creates space for everybody, right? Whether you're part-time, full-time or not. And, and I said this the other day, when I graduated college, I couldn't have dreamed of being the host of Football Americas. Not only because Football Americas didn't exist, but because there was nobody in television whose job was just to do soccer. Like Rob Stone was kind of that guy, but he was also doing bowling. And even look at Rob now, like Rob does college football when he's not doing soccer. And, and Rob Stone is the biggest, like Kate Abdo, she's the biggest, the best, and she does boxing and all these other things. It's still not very clear that like soccer is enough in some shops, right? And so when he proves that, he creates a cottage industry. He creates a space and a job for me to aim for. And that's for me the, the biggest impact that, that Grant Wall had is not only did he did he help others, he created the space for others to aim for. And, and he didn't have to do that. He could have had probably a much more lucrative, uh, much more profitable career covering some other sport, being a Woj, you know, being a chef or being whoever you want to compare him to. Um, but he chose soccer and then he proved that it was enough. And I think for that, like everybody that ever collected a dime for their soccer content ought to be really grateful. Wow. That's really well said. Um, you can catch more of Sebi on ESPN FC and football America streaming on ESPN plus. Thank you so much for your time, Seb, and hope we can speak again soon. Thanks for having me. Great to be with you.